Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Today's episode is presented by Lloyd's Banking Group. Everyone deserves a safe place to call home. That's why Lloyds Banking Group has championed the social housing sector for decades, supporting more than 340 housing associations across the UK. Today, I'm announcing that the United States will be sending 31 Abram tanks to Ukraine. We will the Ukraine so, a big week in terms of Western support for Ukraine. This has probably been the most difficult decision for Olaf Scholz so far when it comes to the war in Ukraine. Yeah, I think this is absolutely a major turning point in the war and one that historians will be looking at very closely. So, German Chancellor Olaf Scholz finally decided this week to send Leopard 2 tanks to Ukraine. Pressure had been mounting for weeks on Scholz to deliver. Now he has. But at what cost? Has the delay soured relations between Western partners at a time when unity is crucial? Or is Scholz a political mastermind, getting exactly what his country needed to deliver, American buy-in, and enough support from his own citizens? I'm Suzanne Lynch, Political's Chief Brussels Correspondent, and yes, this week we're back in Brussels following our broadcast from Davos last week. But this week, all eyes are on Germany. Today, we'll take you behind the scenes to explain how and why Olaf Scholz ultimately decided to bend pressure from Ukraine and international allies and send German Leopard 2 tanks to Ukraine. Some would argue it's a crucial moment in this war. We'll analyse the ramifications for Ukraine, Europe and the Western Alliance. Also in this episode, we're joined by the EU's Financial Services Commissioner, Mairead McGuinness. She'll discuss her efforts to help countries implement Russian sanctions, which have been a crucial tool for the EU in the war in Ukraine. My role in sanctions is implementation, and I think 2023 is the year to implement fully and effectively to have full effect. That means not just internally in Europe, but avoiding circumvention elsewhere. That's coming up later, but first... Let's bring in our political team to discuss this week's big news, and that is the decision by German Chancellor Olaf Scholz to send tanks to Ukraine. I'm joined by our Chief Europe Correspondent, Matthew Karnitschnik. Hello. And Hans von der Berschert, our senior reporter covering Germany. Hi, hello. So Hans, starting with you, uh, can you explain exactly what the German Chancellor announced this week? Well, it has been a big, big decision for Olaf Scholz because for many months the German Chancellor has been under pressure to send German battle tanks, this Leopard tanks, and this pressure has increased, particularly in the past weeks. And so this decision is that Germany will send 14 Leopard 2 tanks and also two tank recovery vehicles with those tanks. So this is like in a very important uh, package. 
but it will also enable other countries that have been waiting for Germany, partly also for the German authorization, to send their Leopard tanks to uh, Ukraine. And this is very significant because the Leopard tank is spread across Europe. So many countries from Spain to Finland, they all use the Leopard tank. And now with this movement from Germany, there's a big push for other countries also to come aboard of a broader tank coalition and to send um, around 80 Leopard tanks to Ukraine. That's a really resolute uh, support for the Ukrainian army as this war is about to go into its second year. Yeah, so that's what's so interesting about this. It's quite a unique situation. Germany has to give permission to other countries to, if you like, re-export their German-made tanks to Ukraine. So that's why so much has kind of hinged on Germany with this whole issue of how much the West was going to support Ukraine. Yes, it's been actually two things. So you mentioned already correctly that because this tank has been produced in Germany, even though it has been maybe sold to Poland or Spain, these countries still need a German permission to re-export the tank to Ukraine. So it was always hinging on Germany that these tanks could be sent to Ukraine. But then also other countries were very much locked into this uh, situation where everyone was waiting for the other one to go first and nobody really wanted to go first. So the German chancellor, we'll talk about this I think in a minute as well, was very much uh, waiting for the US to come on board and them to go first. And other countries like Spain uh, were waiting for Germany as the main producer and also the, the biggest uh, most powerful country, at least in economic terms, in, in Europe, for Germany to go first on the on the leopard tank. So this movement now by the US and by Germany, so the US is going to send their Abram tanks and uh, Germany is going to send their leopard tanks. This is enabling um, a broader coalition of countries that they're all going to send their tanks. So it's a big movement now that has been launched. Matt, Hans mentioned there at the beginning about this intense international pressure that Schultz had come under in recent weeks and months, really, but really in the last few weeks. Um, what was happening there behind the scenes? Who was putting this pressure on? What about other countries, Poland, for example? I think Poland was really critical here because about a week ago, the prime minister of Poland threatened to send leopard tanks to Ukraine, even without German approval, which I think really set the alarm bells ringing in Berlin. That was something that would, you know, break a diplomatic taboo. It's the kind of thing that would really kind of divide the Western alliance on a very fundamental issue. And I think that the Germans also realized that they needed to avoid that at all costs because that would have really, you know, long-lasting repercussions for, for the alliance. But in addition to Poland, you had the Baltic states also pushing, uh, putting pressure on Germany and the United States, of course. But in the end, it seems that the U.S. decided that it was going to more or less call Schultz's bluff and send American-made tanks in order to get him to lift his veto, as it were. But I think for the, for the U.S. and for the other countries in the alliance, the really crucial thing here was really that Germany is allowing other countries to export their tanks because Germany itself is only going to send 14 tanks, at least at the beginning. Yeah, on Wednesday, we saw this kind of coordinated announcement. We had the German Chancellor in the Bundestag on, on Wednesday. Verbündeten und internationalen Partnern. Und ich will ausdrücklich sagen, es war richtig. 
And then we had a press conference by President Joe Biden, flanked by his Defense Secretary and Secretary of State, announcing this plan to send American Abrams tanks. Today, I'm announcing that the United States will be sending 31 Abram tanks to Ukraine. I'm being quite complimentary about Germany. I'm grateful to Chancellor Schultz. Germany has really stepped up. I want to thank the Chancellor for his leadership. The Chancellor has been a strong, strong voice for unity, a close friend, and for the level of effort. But also using a quite careful language about how this wasn't to be used, you know, as an offensive gesture uh, towards Russia, but this was about helping Ukraine uh, win and fight this war. That's what this is about, helping Ukraine defend and protect Ukrainian land. It is not an offensive threat to Russia. We are, there is no offensive threat to Russia. If Russia troops return to Russia, they'll be there for the, this, where, where they belong. This war would be over today. I'm interested as well about, uh, I mean, Matt, you're joining us from Berlin, about the German public opinion on this. The German public seemed to be pretty split on this, or has it been a big issue domestically about the fact that Germany had found itself in the middle of this diplomatic pressure cooker on whether or not to send tanks? How did this go down with ordinary Germans? Well, there's been a pretty emotional debate about this for months, and not just about these tanks, but about infantry fighting vehicles, which the Ukrainians have been pushing for since last March, and the Germans had refused to allow them to even buy those. The Ukrainians initially wanted to buy a 100 of these martyr infantry fighting vehicles, and the Germans wouldn't let them do it. And so this has really dominated a lot of the public debate in Germany over the past year since the war began when it comes to Ukraine and what Germany should be doing, which is a big contrast to what has happened in the United States, say, where there hasn't been as much debate about it, which is why it was quite easy politically for Joe Biden to just say from one day to the next without any real domestic debate, we're going to go ahead and send 31 Abrams tanks to Ukraine in order to get the Germans to move. But in Germany, it it still divides the public. The last poll I saw showed that 46% of Germans were in favor of sending tanks and 43% were against with the rest of the people undecided. So I think this is a, a really important point because that is definitely something that Schultz had his eye on. And he has received relatively high marks from the public so far on his handling of Ukraine and German uh, arms deliveries there. So this is something where, you know, he has had some momentum. He's, he's sort of struggled, I think, in a lot of other areas domestically. But this is one area where the German public has, has generally given him high marks. Interesting. Also, Germany has a new defense minister, Boris Pistorius. Hans, who is he and, and what role do you think he played in this decision? Yeah, he's a very interesting figure here because he was until last week just a interior minister in the state of Lower Saxony, but he always had ambitions to go a step bigger into uh, federal German politics. And this was his opportunity after his predecessor, Christina Lambrecht, stepped down last week. Um, she had a fairly poor um, handling of the whole situation. The Ukraine crisis had many gaffes, uh, many failures, and then decided that um, after committing so many gaffes, it would be best for her to step down. And this is where Pistorius came in. And um, he is um, has quite actually a forceful, strong appearance. He actually, in, in public polls also, has despite being just uh, having been a few days in office, has already quite a very uh, good rating. So um, he started his job officially last 
Thursday. Then on Friday, he already had to go to this uh, notorious Rammstein meeting um, where allies discussed potential tanks deliveries. In the end, couldn't agree, also because Scholz was still on the fence. And there was this whole debate also, which I already referred to, whether uh, Scholz would only move if the Americans sent their tanks as well. In the end, this remained an insistence. And Pistorius had to kind of act within this precondition set by Scholz, but he did actually quite well. And um, a lot of what I hear, heard from uh, officials in Berlin in the past days is that Pistorius has been one of the main figures in this whole tank debate, uh, driving the discussion with the US, but also trying to move Scholz forward. And uh, this week we saw the result. Also, just to comment on what Matt just said, it's absolutely right that Scholz was looking closely at the uh, polls in Germany and uh, this big division. And there's a lot of concern also in, in Germany. And also Pistorius knows this. Um, the whole government is very much aware that there is concern in the German public. It's deeply rooted. Also, this feeling from the Cold War area that the uh, US, also with its nuclear deterrence, is a provider of security for Germany. So I think that's why Scholz and also Pistorius, in the end, um, pushed so much for getting the US on board on the, of this tank deal. And by having the US on board, Scholz can now go to the German public and say, like, we are united and it's not only us, it's not only Germany and a few European countries, the US is on board. And he actually said it in the Bundestag, just I quote, because we act in such an internationally coordinated manner, I will ensure you that this support for Ukraine won't increase the risk for our country. You can trust me, you can trust the federal government. Vertrauen Sie mir, vertrauen Sie der Bundesregierung. Wir werden weiter, weil wir international abgestimmt handeln, sicherstellen, dass diese Unterstützung möglich ist, ohne dass die Risiken für unser Land darüber in eine falsche Richtung wachsen. Das ist, warum wir das so tun und so werden wir es auch weitermachen. To really make this appeal to skeptical citizens and you could see that this has been a lot of his strategy. Yeah, interesting about how he's played this. You know, he was getting so much international criticism, but he's obviously casting this as a win and that he played his cards close to his chest and eventually got the Americans to do what he wants them to do. I mean, Matt Schultz is obviously leading a coalition government. What are the dynamics there around this and, and how has he managed to keep it together? Well, he was also under pressure from his coalition partners to deliver tanks. Um, really, I would say equally from both of the parties, the Liberal Free Democrats and the Greens. And so it became this kind of untenable situation. But as Hans says, to Schultz's credit, he really stuck to his guns, no pun intended, because he'd been saying from the beginning that he wasn't going to deliver these tanks unless the Americans were on board. And that's the same thing he did with the infantry fighting vehicles I mentioned earlier. The, the question is, is this really legitimate? And I think there is a lot of debate around that question, given how badly Ukraine needs these weapons. And the Germans have been debating this for months. And meanwhile, you know, Ukraine is on the back foot in Donbass and, and other areas there in eastern Ukraine. And, you know, a lot of people are dying. And so you can make an argument here that, you know, this has really cost Ukraine lives and much more could have been done quicker. Yeah, like, is it too late? Was this U-turn too late by Schultz? I suppose the other side of this is, is there now a risk of the war escalating, that this is going to be very provocative? I mean, are there, are there fears about that? I mean, it's also worth pointing out, actually, that even though the Americans have agreed to send the Abrams tanks, 
we're looking at months, maybe even years before those tanks may ever actually get to Ukraine. And, you know, whereas Germany set out a quick timeline and Europe will have its tanks there much quicker. So is there a conversation about that this could escalate? Well, I think that's a, an important point. Just a, a couple of things there that this is really the central reason why the U.S. wanted to send leopards instead of American Abrams, which is that there are thousands, literally thousands of leopard tanks around Europe that could be sent there fairly quickly. The U.S. doesn't have Abrams tanks that it can just send off the rack to Ukraine, partly because a lot of the ones in service in the U.S. have things like radioactive armor and and other components that they don't want to fall into the hands of the Russians. So they're going to have to take old Abrams tanks, they're going to have to refurbish them, and then they're going to have to send them to Ukraine, train the Ukrainians to use them. I mean, the whole thing, if you just look at it on paper, sounds ridiculous because the Ukrainians are going to have to learn two very complex tank systems. They're going to have to have all of the back-end logistics there, the maintenance and so forth behind that, which is much more complex than people think. And, you know, to your question, is this an escalation? Yes, it is an escalation, but the Russians have been escalating all along. And if we don't help the Ukrainians in this situation, then they're going to lose. It's that simple. So it's either you match their escalation or you allow them to lose. And I think this is why Biden was so nervous about the German position and why he decided to just say, okay, we're going to send these tanks in. You have to do your part now and let, let's move on from this. To very briefly add there, it's striking how Germany is stressing that how quick they will actually be able to send those leopard tanks to Ukraine. We're talking about six weeks of training starting in about a week in the beginning of February. And then by late March, these tanks are already there. So you could really see that Biden now forced Germans' hand also to enable this in order to get these tanks there before really spring starts so that they could come just in time for Russia or new Russian offensive. Well, let's see how this all pans out. Um, Hans and Matt, thank you so much for bringing us up to date on this really quite a dramatic moment in uh, the West's aid for Ukraine in this war that's now approaching its one-year anniversary. Thanks, guys. Thank you. Thank you. We'll be right back with Mairead McGuinness, the EU's Financial Services Commissioner. We'll discuss how the EU is going about enforcing Russian sanctions and its efforts to regulate cryptocurrencies. So stay with us. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax and think about work you really really want it all to work out while you're away monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind when all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync things just flow wherever you are tap the banner to go to monday.com a message from lloyd's banking group lloyd's banking group has championed social housing for decades it provides finance expertise and guidance to more than 340 housing associations across the UK. These range from small local associations of several hundred homes to much larger regional associations responsible for tens of thousands of properties. Each has an important role to play in their community to help people find a safe place to call home. Improving access to quality and affordable homes 
is central to Lloyds Banking Group's commitment to helping Britain prosper. That's why Lloyds Banking Group is calling for one million more homes to be made available for social rent over the next decade. Mairead McGuinness is the European Commissioner in charge of the EU's financial services portfolio. That means everything from capital markets to protecting savers and investors to the regulation of complex financial products like cryptocurrencies. McGuinness was a very well-known member of the European Parliament for years until she was tapped back in 2020 to become Ireland's Commissioner after her predecessor Phil Hogan was forced to resign from his role over his attendance at a golf event during the COVID pandemic. We caught up with McGuinness at the tail end of the World Economic Forum in Davos last week. As she explains, when it comes to her portfolio, she's in charge of anything to do with money. Anything to do with money in small pieces or large pieces, to do with capital flows, that's all within my remit. And one of the big pieces is how do we make money flow to where it is invested in more sustainable Europe? So it's the backbone of the European Green Deal. We're not going to have the transition to sustainability without money. So you could say that um, I'm the cash register, maybe. Another big issue for McGuinness is the implementation of the EU sanctions against Russia. Nine rounds of sanctions have already been passed and a tenth one is on its way. My role in sanctions is implementation. And I think 2023 is the year to implement fully and effectively to have full effect. That means not just internally in Europe, but avoiding circumvention elsewhere. So we are working directly with member states to understand the difficulties some have. We're also making sure that those who have better structures help others along the way so that we have implementation. And sometimes we have to look very closely at unintended consequences or lack of clarity around a particular point and we need then to provide that guidance and that uh, reassurance. So it is not uh, unexpected that on some elements of uh, our proposals we've had to look again and answer and indeed tweak where that is necessary. But the objective here is to make sure that Russia feels the pain of cutting itself off because of the illegal invasion of Ukraine, uh, not just in the financial sector, but also across its manufacturing sector. And that is happening. It's beginning to hit and it will deepen over time. But it will only deepen if we have effective implementation across all of our member states and then deal with circumvention and avoidance. We have now a new envoy in place that will look at the international aspects of this. Last month, the EU appointed a senior diplomat, David O'Sullivan, to serve as international special envoy in charge of working with countries outside the EU to make sure these sanctions can't be evaded or circumvented internationally. But I can't repeat significantly enough because sometimes we've run from one sanctions package to another in terms of announcements. The enormity of this, it is unprecedented. Unlike the US, we don't have this single body that looks at sanctions implementation and can grant licenses where there is a need to do that. Way back when this started, I, I, I said out loud that we may need to have something like that, a structure at a European level, because sanctions are now an important part of our even security and defense, if you like, and obviously in this case, our support for Ukraine. And I think that's perhaps something that I will certainly um, be thinking about in the next two years of this commission. Uh, We won't do anything immediately because we're now dealing, uh, as I've just discussed, with implementation as effectively as we can. But we will need to look to the medium and longer term. 
If that wasn't enough, another issue McGuinness is dealing with is the complex effort to regulate cryptocurrencies. That's a particularly pressing issue given the dramatic collapse late last year of FTX, one of the largest global cryptocurrency exchanges. Now, the EU has been leading when it comes to regulating this industry. It recently passed a massive piece of legislation called the Markets in Crypto Assets Regulation. That's a mouthful. Which aims to harmonise regulation across the whole of the EU. I asked the Commissioner where things stood when it comes to the EU's regulation of crypto. Well, the good news is, and I will not claim any credit, it happened before I arrived here to the Commission, is that we were ahead of the curve. So Europe was already looking at this space and you had three choices. One, ignore it and let's see what happens and look what happened. Not a good picture. Second, ban it. That wasn't possible. Third, regulate it. So we have this markets and crypto assets piece of legislation has gone through the process and will be implemented shortly when it goes through all of the scrubbing, et cetera, and translations. And we would um, say that had that been in place and if those American cryptos were in Europe, our legislation would have covered them and perhaps avoided some of the worst consequences. On the other hand, some of those um, stories that are evolving um, around crypto players had very little to do with the fact they were crypto. It was just that they weren't very well managed uh, yes. and were taking kind of shortcuts here and there. So some good old fashioned accounting and watching and management are what's needed. I think if you talk to the crypto people, I think let me say that to some extent, crypto is like a religion. You either believe or you don't. Um, I'm agnostic on it because it's the best place to be. It allows you to see the, the wood for the trees. I still talk to those who believe and don't want me to interfere. And that's where crypto started. When we had a financial crisis, there was some of very clever people on technology who thought, let us create a space where we have crypto, which is outside the regulatory remit of the establishment, and we can continue then this to create this new world, if you like. But the truth is, it now has to be within the regulatory remit of the establishment, not because today we're worried that it will impact financial stability, but because it could, and we don't want to see that. But also, there are some people, if I had my phone, I'd hold it up, who are busily investing in crypto on their phones, mm. and some of them are not that old. And I have some in my own household of a certain age, and I just listen to what their pals are talking about, and I'm going, there's a whole world out there. And it's not that I want to protect them, because protection sounds like you're telling them what to do. I want to alert them yeah. to the realities of crypto. And I think that what has happened has been a horror for some. They've lost everything, yes. uh, but no harm because mm. it's good to know that what goes up can come down with a bang and you can lose everything. It kind of feels like the conversation people had about tech, you know, a few yeah. years ago. Yeah, but that's humanity for you. Some people believe absolutely and run with it. Others yeah. are a bit more cautious yeah. and don't take the risks. What worries me broadly around financial stuff, if you like, uh, which is my area, not just in crypto, is that we don't have a financially alert citizens generally. I mean, none of us are that well equipped with this financial world, whether it's the crypto or elsewhere. Uh, so I talk a lot about financial literacy, not yeah. just outwardly, but for all of us. Yeah. Uh, so that people tune in to the fact that they need to be able to not understand everything, but be able to ask the questions, have yes. the confidence to ask whether it's the bank or the crypto. Uh, you know, what does this mean? Can I lose? How much? How? When? Why? Basic journalistic questions, really, yes. you'll know them. So I think that crypto will not 
go away anytime soon. Yeah. But I think it might uh, reemerge more sanitized, more chastened, perhaps. But I still think there are those in the crypto space who think they can push out yeah. the established um, central bank, even, dare I say yeah. it, which is another whole other area around digital euro, and that they would still have that motivation. Others like what we're doing in Europe because they want to be regulated. So even that, the companies themselves. Yeah, we yeah. had that feedback. Yeah. They, they're happy to be in that yeah. space uh, because at some point it was going to happen. Yeah, they need it, that accountability yeah, and that. Absolutely. One big point. Point, though, and I, I, I've actually had this conversation with U.S. counterparts. It's a bit like climate change. Crypto is, is a global issue. Climate is a global issue. We won't solve either of these without global engagement. So we're very happy to talk to our U.S. colleagues about what we've done and exchange ideas. We even have staffers coming for, to the commission very soon to look at what we've done and, and for them yeah. to ask us questions around it, including what might be the next iteration. Because technology is not going to stop as it is today. Blockchain is evolving. We've even allowed for pilot projects to happen so that we are more, I suppose, um, innovation friendly than seem to be just regulation and stopping because yeah. we don't want to give out that message. But we don't want crypto to continue as it currently is, which is like a dangerous skating ring and thin ice and people drown in the consequences. Uh, and I think in the US, there's a realization that and something will happen there. A I think along the, lines, the regulatory Yeah, I think it will happen. Yeah. Has yeah. to. Great. Thank you so much, Commissioner, for joining us. And we'll keep an eye on those files. <laughs> Thank you. And that's it for this episode of EU Confidential. Please do follow the podcast wherever you're listening. And if you like what you hear, tell a friend or a colleague. It's the best way for others to join our EU Confidential community. Remember, you can always send us feedback or ideas by emailing us at podcast at politico.eu. Today's episode was produced by our executive producer for audio, Christina Gonzalez. Also, thanks to Ellen Bonin for production assistance on this week's episode and to our editor, James Randerson. I'm Suzanne Lynch in Brussels. See you next week. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc.